Well, let me start by saying this. God kind of shuffled my deck this week uh, in a lot of ways, but I'm thinking specifically in terms of my understanding of this topic. Um, And so I'm probably going to shuffle yours a little bit, and you may agree with me or you might not agree with me. That's fine. You just hold my feet to the fire of what you see in God's Word and act on that. When I first started thinking about this message that was coming up on evangelism, I expected that I'd be saying this morning that evangelism is not so much about the programs of the church as it is about the commitment of individual believers to share the gospel with those around them, all individual believers. I expected to propose that it would no doubt be a good thing if we as a body could pick one or two evangelistic efforts and work together on them, but that we definitely wouldn't want you guys to go away with the conclusion that that was the real essence of what God intends to do through this body by way of evangelism, Um, because that work is done by each individual believer. Well, I got started digging into the word and really examining the passages in which God actually talks about his assignment to believers to spread the gospel. And I just about got whiplash when I realized how far off the mark my thinking has been, not just for a little while, but since the day I got saved 40 years ago this year. And I'm not saying I had it wrong in every respect. Praise God. But I believe I've missed the biblical focus in some pretty critical ways. As I work through the scriptures to examine as many passages as I could find regarding God's call to his people to proclaim the message of the gospel, a few things became evident that were definitely not clear to me previously. And I'm going to ask you to hear me out carefully on this so you don't read something into it in the first part of the message that I'm not actually saying. I have no interest at all in being controversial. (laughs) And there is nothing new under the sun. I only want to be biblical, but I have to say that what I find in the Word does not line up exactly with what I have heard as the standard line on evangelism all my Christian life. The first thing I want to do is share a few quick observations and then tie those, move toward what I believe I see in God's Word as the big picture of how God gets the gospel out to the lost through His church. The first observation is that the purpose of the meeting of the church is not essentially evangelistic. Now that one was no big surprise to me and probably isn't to you either, otherwise you'd be in a different church. But the passages that talk about what we do when we come together as a body don't say very much about ministering to unbelievers in our midst. Now, that does come up, specifically in 1 Corinthians 14, I believe. But it's not a focus of the passages about what we do as a body. Those passages instead focus on believers worshiping God, receiving teaching from His Word, observing the Lord's Supper together in remembrance of Christ and building one another up so that the body of Christ will be encouraged and strengthened and will be effective in carrying on with the work of Jesus Christ in the world. Now that's all I'll say this morning on that particular point. The second observation is where it got interesting for me. If you search the New Testament for commands given to every believer to be proactively engaged in evangelism or for warnings and rebukes to every believer for not getting out and proactively proclaiming the gospel, you'll have a hard time finding them. This one surprised me. You'll find commands and exhortations for all of us to pray for men to come to the knowledge of the truth, Commands for all of us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Commands to all of us to keep our behavior excellent so that we don't hinder the word concerning Christ. And you'll find all manner of exhortations to godliness and corrections for sins that clearly apply to every believer. 
but you'll have a hard time finding commands that apply generally to all believers to get out and proclaim the gospel. Now, please bear with me. By the way, I don't believe Paul's direct exhortation in 2 Timothy 4.5 to Timothy to do the work of an evangelist applies to all believers. And I'll explain why in a little bit, but again, I ask you to stay with me. I'll tell you right up front, in case I've got you really worried at this point, I am not saying that some believers are exempt from sharing the gospel. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that the consensus view of what God expects of every believer when it comes to doing evangelism doesn't seem to line up so well with what God actually says on the subject. And I want to be biblical. Of course, it's also possible that I'm the only one who has misunderstood God's design here. And that my own tunnel vision has made me not hear what others are saying on this issue. But I don't think so. In any case, again, I ask you to hear me out and hold every word that I say accountable to what you see in Scripture. The third key observation, I believe, explains the first two. If you do search the New Testament looking at the passages that do, in fact, talk about God's assignment to His people to do evangelism, I believe the most prominent thing you will find is this. Evangelism is fundamentally the work of the body of Christ. It's a corporate assignment. It's a group assignment rather than an individual assignment. Now, we live in a very individualistic culture, so it's a bit of a step for us to think in these terms. But as the Bible presents it, I believe the ongoing work of Jesus Christ in the world to seek and save the lost is being accomplished by God through the body of Christ with Him as the head, not through a bunch of isolated individual efforts. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, Peter says, You are a chosen race, speaking to the church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that that clause, I believe, is about the gospel. We have this identity that Peter lays out for us at the beginning of verse 9. And the reason God gave us this identity is so that we would testify about the miraculous redemption that he has granted to us in Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel. Peter's talking here to all the saints who were scattered throughout Asia Minor, and he uses the word you in the plural here. So he's talking to all the believers in the church. But it's very interesting that each of the four titles that he ascribes here to the plural you is a singular title. He says that we, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. He doesn't address us as a bunch of priests, all with individual priesty things to do. He says we are one race, one priesthood, one nation, one people. And the purpose for which God made us one is so that we may may proclaim as one the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And by the way, that corporate focus in in this passage is no different than when God gave these exact same titles and this same essential assignment to Israel a very long time before this. In Exodus 19, the chapter leading up to the the giving of the Ten Commandments, God told Israel that if they would obey His voice and keep His covenant, they would be His own treasured possession, singular. His own people, singular. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a holy nation. Exodus 19, verses 5 to 6. Not every Israelite was a priest. But the priestly calling to Israel to act as the mediators of the knowledge of God to the entire world was an assignment that God gave to Israel as a nation, as a people. Now, today, in Christ, 
God has created his church. And that church is made up, as we've seen throughout our study of Romans, of Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free men, male and female, all kinds of people. And while we are engaged together as one in the proclamation of the gospel of Christ, not all of us are called to be evangelists. Stick with me. I've heard it said numerous times that even though there is a spiritual gift of evangelism that applies only to some believers, we all nonetheless have the same essential assignment from God to do evangelism individually. In other words, according to that view, the only significant difference between those who have the spiritual gift of evangelism and those who don't is that those who have the gift will probably be more effective at doing evangelism. That they will see more fruit. And that probably they'll find that it comes more naturally to share the gospel with people than for those who don't have the gift. That's how I've understood it for a very long time. But in preparing for this message, God has challenged my thinking significantly. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about what are called the equipping gifts. In verses 11 through 13, he says, God gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. For what? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Many saints, one work. To the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now you'll notice immediately in that passage that there are some things that apply to some and there are other things that apply to all. God is using the gifts that he has given to some so that all of us will attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, it's also important to see there that the mature man is singular. The purpose for which God gave specific gifts to certain men is not so that we will become a bunch of mature men. Now, that's a worthy goal. That's a good thing. But that's not what Paul's saying. He says we attain to a mature man. And just a couple of verses later, he makes it clear that that mature man is Jesus Christ. He says we are to grow up together in all aspects into him who is the head of the body. And then he says, this is where he says that, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head even Christ. And then he says, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. All of this equipping and maturing that God is doing in his church through the gifts that he's given to specific individuals is goal-oriented. We are being equipped for the work of service. Many saints, various individual gifts, but one work. Now some see the service in this passage as having to do only with the nurturing and building up of the body itself, sort of an inwardly focused work of service. But I believe Paul's talking about the entire work that Jesus Christ carries out in and through his body, the church, including the work of drawing unbelieving men to faith in Jesus Christ. In his high priestly prayer on the night before he was crucified, Jesus asked his Father to perfect us, his church, in unity. And then he gave a purpose statement. He said that they may be perfected in unity so that the world would know that you sent me. In other words, so that the world would know that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior and King sent from heaven. In other words, so that the world would know that the gospel is the truth. 
We serve one another in the body of Christ to build up the body of Christ so that his body will be healthy, mature, and effective at carrying out his work. God gave us different gifts so that we'd be equipped to continue doing Christ's work on this earth of seeking and saving the lost together as one. And Jesus Christ is the head of the body and the master of that work in every respect. And because that work of service that the body is being equipped to do together is ultimately directed outward toward a world of people who need to know the Savior, the gift of evangelist is listed here as one of the equipping gifts that the body needs to accomplish that work. The great commission that Jesus delivered to his disciples to preach the gospel and to make disciples of all nations is recorded in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And you really got to back up to verse 16 in context. It's further expanded in Mark 16 and in Luke 24. Each of those passages says that Christ's commission to proclaim the gospel was delivered to the eleven. That is, the eleven disciples who remained after Judas had died in the aftermath of his betrayal of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, just before he ascended into heaven, Jesus repeated his call to the apostles whom he had chosen to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Those 11 men were Christ's starting lineup to begin the great work of spreading the gospel and establishing his church. Paul was later also called directly by the resurrected Christ, named as an apostle and charged with the proclamation of the gospel and the establishing of the church among the Gentiles. But those men were not left alone to do the daunting task that Jesus had assigned to them. Jesus promised them that he would be with them even to the end of the age. In Acts 1.8, he said his spirit would come, the Holy Spirit would come upon them with power, and that's how they would have the power to carry out this charge. Jesus promised to be with them. The work that he had given them to do was his work. And he promised to be in them and with them to accomplish it. And the church that Jesus was creating through the witness of those men was and is to this day charged with carrying on that same work. And Jesus is still with us and in us. The church is his body, and he's using every single member of his body to continue that work until the day that he comes to claim his inheritance in the saints. In 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul develops the body concept in much greater detail, he goes to great pains to make the point (laughs) that things would actually work very badly if every member of the body had the same job description. He says, For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? Of course, Mike doesn't really count because he's got arms and legs and teeth. But But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. He's the architect of the whole thing. And then he says, "If, if they were all one member, where would the body be? So just as not every part of the body of the human body is an eye, fortunately, or an ear, we who are members of the body of Christ are not all called to be gifted evangelists. Now some, again, will enthusiastically reply, well, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist, which seems to imply that Timothy didn't have the gift of evangelism, but was nonetheless expected to evangelize. My response to that is that it reads a whole lot into the words, do the work of an evangelist. 
I don't believe it's apparent at all from those words that Timothy didn't have the gift of evangelism. In fact, Paul wrote that letter to Timothy toward the end of his life as he was preparing Timothy to take up the mantle of Paul's own ministry in large measure. Paul expected Timothy to continue doing what Paul had been doing, proclaiming the gospel and building up the still very young church of Jesus Christ among the Gentile cities throughout the Roman Empire. Now, that doesn't mean that Timothy's job description was exactly the same as Paul's, but it seems very likely that evangelism was a healthy component of that assignment. All right. So if evangelism is an assignment God has given to the body as a whole, and if God has gifted and called only some in the body to be evangelists, how does that play out in practice? How can the task of proclaiming the gospel be the responsibility of the entire body of Christ when God has only gifted certain men to do it? At first glance, that might sound a little self-contradictory, but it actually makes perfect sense, and we have some very solid analogies to it in in the rest of our lives. You guys know I like war analogies, so I'm going to throw another one out at this point. During World War II, many factories in the United States that prior to that had produced cars and tractors and widgets of various kinds were retooled to produce tanks and artillery and guns and ammunition, and uniforms, and everything else that the soldiers who were prosecuting the fight needed in order to win the war, decisively. The assembly line workers in those factories, many of whom were women in a time when being a homemaker was still an enviable profession, worked in shifts around the clock, and they cranked out weapons and supplies at an astounding level of efficiency that even our enemies found impressive. And what motivated those factory workers was the knowledge that the things that they were producing would determine the outcome of a global war against tyranny. Do you think any of those housewives working in those factories away from their children would have said, wow, I'm glad I don't have to worry about winning this war. All I have to do is make sure I put that rivet in the same place every time that piece comes by my my part of the belt. No way. Winning the war was all they thought about. It was why they made the very painful sacrifices to do the work that they were doing day in and day out. This is an official U.S. government poster of Rosie the Riveter. And many of you have seen posters like that in the past. During its aggressive advance across northern France and into Belgium and finally into Germany itself during the very harsh winter of 1944 and 1945, the Third Army under the command of George Patton inflicted ten times more casualties than it received. It was easily one of the most effective and efficient combat initiatives in the history of the U.S. Army. And the decisiveness of that campaign was the result of superior leadership, superior soldiering, and superior equipment. And since a huge percentage of the males of working age in America were in the armed forces at the time, if you took Rosie out of the picture, there is absolutely no way we would have won that war. In fact, to say that it was the soldiers who won the war without also talking about Rosie would be a serious misrepresentation of the facts. Winning the war was a group effort. So how is all that relevant to the issue of evangelism? If you don't have the gift of evangelism or the role of evangelist, that doesn't mean that the church's assignment to proclaim the gospel is not your concern. It doesn't mean you're not involved in that task. The proclamation of the gospel is fundamental to why God still has you here on this earth and to why God made you part of his church, the body of Christ. Now, it's fascinating to me that I believe we get this right when it comes to international missions. 
but for some reason we completely change the paradigm when we talk about sharing the gospel here at home. And my question is, why do we do that? On what biblical basis do we do that? This church at CBC is one of the best I've seen at diligently supporting our overseas missionaries with prayers, with financial support, with emails and Skype sessions and any other available means of communication. And when they're here at home among us, with hospitality and beds and cars and tender loving care. And our missionaries are very quick to point out how great a value they place on that concerted, united support. Not every member at CBC is able to support a missionary financially. Not every member is able to provide housing to a missionary when he or she is here on furlough. Not every member has the same opportunity to be devoted to daily, diligent prayer for a particular missionary or missionary team. But when you put all those individual acts of obedience together, this little body of believers at CBC ends up being very useful and effective in the hands of God to support the work that our missionaries are are doing on the other side of the world to proclaim the gospel to the lost. But what about right here in our own backyard? Do we do evangelism that same way here? It doesn't seem like it to me. Do we put the wealth of resources that God has given to us in this body behind the work of the gifted men and women in our midst who are devoted to proclaiming the gospel? I don't think so. Instead, I think it seems like we mostly sit around feeling guilty because we individually haven't shared the gospel very much lately. And that doesn't seem to be getting us very far. Do you know there's a church on Campbell Road that baptized 50 new believers last year? Most of them had not come from that church. Now, we're not pragmatists, so the real question is not how is our approach working. The real question is, does it reflect God's revealed design for proclaiming the gospel? I don't think so. And I believe that because it doesn't, it fragments our efforts and it makes us far less effective than we could be. Satan's strategy is to divide and conquer. Christ's strategy is to unite and overcome. Now, there are a lot of ways to do evangelism. There are already a number of gifted men and women right here in our church who are diligently getting the good news out, and we should be prayerfully and enthusiastically supporting their efforts. But, beloved, I believe that if we're following God's design for evangelism, we won't be satisfied with a scattershot approach as the fulfillment of our corporate call to do evangelism. When it comes to bringing the gospel to the lost people right here in Richardson and in the surrounding area, I'm convinced that we as a local body must muster our God-given resources behind an evangelistic work in a unified manner. Let's pick something and do it together so that we're acting as one and not as many. Most of the individual efforts that will go into that work will be to support the frontline efforts of a few. That's God's design for evangelism. And if we, if we've been less effective than we ought to believe, ought to be, I believe it's because, again, that's not quite how we've been doing it. Now I want to also mention that I believe those in the church, in our church, who are gifted and zealous to personally proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ have had the unnecessary burden of being told the same wrong things about God's design for evangelism that I personally have held for so long. And so they often end up trying to teach the rest of us how to make opportunities to share the gospel individually. Think about this, guys. What would happen if instead we put the concerted and united support of our body behind their efforts to share the gospel? What if those with administrative gifts in our body helped them, 
those evangelists be more organized and more systematic about how they go about that process? What if those with financial wherewithal helped to fund those more systematic efforts? What if when the evangelist on the front lines came across an emotional or physical need in the life of someone with whom he had shared the gospel, he could turn the meeting of that need over to someone in the body who had the gift of mercy or of helps. That way the evangelist wouldn't have to feel like he had to address all those needs himself. He'd be part of a well-equipped team. Wouldn't that be a more effective way to get the gospel out to more people and to move to the next step of disciple-making, of making followers of Jesus Christ out of, out of those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ? Isn't it worth considering how it would play out if we actually did evangelism that way together as a body? Now, while I have my own ideas about some things we might do along those lines, I'm not going to try to decide for this church what focused work of evangelism we should be doing together. Because there are a lot of great ideas in this room. And right after this hour, we're going to have an open discussion in room 252 upstairs, and I hope we don't have room for everybody. And I pray that in that discussion we'll be thinking hard along these lines. I believe in that discussion we should listen hard to those among us who have demonstrated that they have the gift of evangelism and zeal for doing that great work. They won't likely be to the best people to administer a concerted effort, or to assign the support tasks. They'll be the visionaries who can help us keep our eye on the ball. And we need to talk to them a lot. We might not get it right the first try or the second try, but we should commit ourselves to settling on a work that we can do together as a body, and we should dig into it as if we were waging a war, because that's exactly what we're tasked with doing a war to reclaim the souls of men from the hands of the enemy. Before I move on to the next point that some of you have been waiting for, which is what our individual responsibilities are with regard to evangelism, I want to point, I want to mention something my dear brother Taylor Letts said in our discussion this morning, uh, Wednesday morning, that hit me right between the eyes. And it fits exactly with what I've been seeing in God's Word on this topic. He said, we have to quit acting like CBC is the whole body of Christ. The reality is we're just one little part of the body of Christ even in the city of Richardson, Texas. And his point was, we should stop trying to do everything. Instead, we should pick one or two things, works of ministry, and do them very well, and above all, do them together. God has a whole lot of other local churches to do other important aspects of the work of ministry and evangelism. All right, here's the question you've been waiting for me to ask, and it's a very important question. Does this mean I don't have to share the gospel? <laughs> There might possibly be some of you who are thinking at this point, wow, this is great. I'm off the hook. I get to let the evangelists take care of, of, of sharing the gospel. The fact is it scares me to death to try to talk with people about Jesus, so I just don't. I'm glad to hear I don't have to feel guilty about it anymore. Well, if that's what you're thinking, I'm going to disappoint you. Because the Bible's answer to the question, does this mean I don't have to share the gospel, is... No, it does not. At the individual level, when you get right down to it, there are two categories of people with regard to evangelism. Those who make opportunities to share the gospel and those who take opportunities to share the gospel. Both of those groups are engaged in some context in directly sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with other people. Let me explain what I mean. Those whom God has called and gifted as evangelists, in keeping with 
Ephesians 4.11, 1 Peter 3, 2 and 3, have the task of making opportunities to share the gospel. When Jonathan Phelps goes out knocking on doors, and apparently even when he goes to Sam's Wholesale Club, he is seeking to create opportunities for the gospel to be proclaimed. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and again in Acts 4, Peter stood in a public place in Jerusalem and very proactively proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. He talked about who Jesus is, and he talked about what Jesus had done at the cross. And the first time he did that, 3,000 people came to Christ. And the second time he did that, 5,000 people came to Christ. That's what I call making opportunities to share the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that those gifted evangelists control the outcome of their efforts in any sense. Jonathan certainly knows that to be true. God is still the Lord of the harvest. He is the one who raises up men like Peter and gives them the necessary gifts and calling. And he is the only one who changes the hearts of men so that they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, no one comes to me except that the Father draws him. John 6.44 But those whom God has gifted as evangelists are called to proactively create opportunities to proclaim the gospel. And with regard to their efforts, the rest of us are called to support their work of evangelism so that we all end up working together with one purpose and one mind doing one work. Check out Philippians chapter 1 when Paul praises the Philippians for their participation in his ministry. And that's in terms of prayer and nurture and support and probably money. Some are called to make opportunities to proclaim the gospel. What about the rest of us? The rest of us are called to take opportunities to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ when God sets them before us. I'm not making this up. In 1 Peter 3, we're told to be ready. Be ready to share the news. The context here is There's a long passage that talks about submission. Submission of slaves to masters, of wives to husbands. And in the middle of that is Christ's submission to the Father as our example. And Peter's laying this out because he knows the church is in the midst of persecution. And he says to them, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And then look at this. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who, uh, to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul presents both parts of what we've been talking about this morning. First, He calls the Colossian saints to pray for his ministry. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us, Paul and his co-workers, a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I also have been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. See, he's calling the local church to get behind the work of evangelism that God has appointed to him and his co-workers to do. That's the body supporting together the work of gifted evangelists. But look at where he goes next. In the very next verses, he says to the same group of believers, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Beloved, every one of us is called by God to be ready to share the good news of life in Jesus Christ when he gives us opportunity. The evangelists are called to make opportunities and we're called to take opportunities. Okay, what does it mean to be ready to give an account for the hope that's in you? I'm going to come at this from 
sort of a negative perspective in order to get around to what we can do positively to improve our usefulness to God as individuals to draw them into Christ. I believe there are at least four key things that we commonly do that cause us to miss opportunities that God has set before us. You might say these are things we do that make the field of our individual lives less fertile for God's use in attracting men to Christ. The first is we insulate ourselves from unbelievers instead of loving them as we love ourselves. We all agree that we were, we were commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. But many of us simply don't have non-Christian friends. And what's amazing to me is the extent to which our personal guilt about finding it hard to share the gospel with people feeds our insulation from unbelievers. We avoid cultivating relationships with the unbelievers around us because we don't know how to turn conversations to the gospel. How about if we focus instead on loving people and let God worry about setting the stage for the gospel? By the way, those with whom Jesus spent his time were nearly all unbelievers when he met them. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, can you be loving your neighbor if you never even talk to your neighbor? Can you be loving your neighbor if you have no idea what his needs are or her needs? We have a dear friend on the mission field who many of you know who often says that loving people is the doorway to the proclamation of the gospel, even for an evangelist. He has some very encouraging stories about amazing opportunities God has given him to talk to people about Jesus Christ simply because he took the time to be in their lives and to love on them as God has loved on him. Second, when we do have interaction with unbelievers, we avoid talking about the things that are most important to us, the things concerning Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard the name Yo-Yo Ma? Some of you have. If Blixa and Rachel were here, they would, they would know who I'm talking about. Yo-Yo is one of the most acclaimed American cellists of all time. He has a truckload of Grammy Awards. He's received the National Medal of Arts, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and several pages of other highly coveted awards. He played for two presidents when he was seven years old. His favorite cello named Petunia, who's there with him, was made in 1733 and is worth approximately two and a half million dollars. Yo-Yo inadvertently left Petunia in a New York City taxi cab in 1999, but thanks to an honest cabbie, she was recovered unharmed. Now, if you had Yo-Yo over to your house for dinner, how long do you think the conversation would go before the subject of music came up? My guess is not very long. See, if you're going to spend time with someone who's... Life revolves around his intense love of music. You better be ready to talk about music. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life? Do you believe he's the reason you have every good and eternal thing that comes from the hand of the Father? Is your worldview defined by what you know to be true based on what God has revealed in his word? The meaning of life and death? Wisdom and foolishness, truth and falsehood, what makes a marriage great, where the whole history of the world is headed. <laughs> if that's a reasonably accurate description of your understanding of things, then the one and only way you could possibly avoid talking about them is if you're trying to avoid talking about them. And if you are trying to avoid talking about them when you're around unbelievers, Something's amiss. And it's worth thinking about what it is that's amiss. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And if you are talking about the excellencies of Christ with unbelievers in a manner that honestly, simply reflects your personal beliefs and priorities, 
you'll never have to force the matter of sharing the gospel. Just be ready when God opens the door and everything will be just fine. Third and most importantly, we don't pray for the unbelievers God has placed in our lives. Nor do we ask him to put more of them in our lives. If God is the Lord of the harvest, Matthew 9, 37 and 38, and if, as Jesus said, no one comes to him unless the Father draws him, then God is the one we need to be talking about, uh, talking to and depending upon if we have a love for the lost. Another dear missionary with whom our church is closely associated has said that prayer is the very heart and soul of evangelism. Prayer acknowledges your utter dependence upon God to prepare your heart and the hearts of those around you for the presentation and the hearing of the message of truth. We should be far more focused on praying for the unbelievers in our lives than we are about worrying uh, on worrying about when and how to turn a conversation to the gospel. God says, be ready to follow his lead. And prayer more than anything else is what makes us and others ready to follow the lead of our Savior and Master. Fourth and finally, our walk sometimes doesn't match our words. In the passage from 1 Peter 3 that we looked at before, look at how closely our personal righteousness is tied to God's call to be ready to give an account for the hope that is in us. He says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear the intimidation of those who persecute you. And do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That means set Christ apart as the master of your heart, of your life. And then he says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. In Colossians 4, the other passage we looked at, it's the same connection. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as, as it were with salt. It is a righteous life submitted to God that creates the fertile field for God to use to draw them into Christ. And if our life is like that, we don't have to worry so much about when and how to speak the words. Now, how are men going to notice the hope that's in you if your life speaks of the same kind of selfishness and hopelessness that they see in the world? Many of you know Ann Blevins. I got to work with her for 15 years at VentureNet. And I got to see over and over what a quiet, godly life does to the people around her. There was one client of ours who was struggling with some issues in her family and her personal life. And she just, Anne just kind of came alongside her and treated her with a lot of love. And after a while, this woman said to Anne, my life is filled with anxiety and turmoil. And I look at you and I see serenity. I see peace. What's the deal? And Anne got to share the gospel with her, and that woman trusted Jesus Christ as her Savior. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, and God is going to use you in the lives of the people around you. It's that simple. I hope it's evident by this point that I believe God's Word tells us we are all to be engaged in the proclamation of the gospel. Those of us who do not have the gift or calling of evangelists are to make sure our lives are fertile fields for God to use to draw others to Christ. We are to be vigilant, always ready to speak the message of salvation when God gives opportunity. We are to love the people God brings into our lives, to pray for their salvation if they don't know Jesus Christ. When you talk to them, as you're loving on them, talk about the things that actually matter to you. 
There's no reason to be shy about Christ. And for goodness sake, don't freak out and wallow in guilt because you didn't move the conversation all the way to the sinner's prayer. People don't get saved by praying. They get saved through faith in Jesus Christ. The assignment is not for you to make people trust Christ. The assignment is to speak the truth in love and trust God to change the hearts of men on his timetable and in his terms. It lifts the burden associated with sharing the gospel when we recognize that we are merely useful instruments. Finally, make sure your life reflects your identity as a child of God so that the unbelievers God puts in your life find Christ attractive. And while you're doing these simple things individually that God has called you to do, recognize that we have a corporate calling that is front and center in God's ongoing work of bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost world, both abroad and here. If we're not doing anything together as one body, to further the gospel of Jesus Christ here with one mind and one voice and one purpose, putting all of our gifts to use, then we as a church are not doing the assignment of evangelism on God's terms. Let's give that some thought. Loving Father, I pray that, I pray that we would come away this morning with uh, perhaps a clearer understanding of our assignment from you. And I especially ask, Lord, that that we as a body would know our assignment. You've given us this amazing context in which to live and to serve alongside those who will be our brothers and sisters in eternity. We will stand forever in your presence and proclaim your glory and enjoy you. But while we're here, Lord, we're in a battle. We wake up every morning behind enemy lines. And if we are not fighting this battle together, Lord, then we are weaker. And we pray that you would pierce our hearts and make us to understand that you have made us interdependent for a good reason. So that in our diversity, you would cause unity. And in our unity, the world would look at us and they would know that you sent the Son to die for the sins of men and to redeem the hearts of men. Father, I pray that you would superintend our discussion in this next hour and the the meetings that will follow in the following week to work toward specific actions that we as a body need to implement and that you would work in the hearts of the elders so that we would we would Go hard after this until we know what we need to be doing. Lord, if we don't get it right, we pray that you would just keep steering us because you've said a man plans his way, but you're the one who directs our steps. The same applies to your church. All right, I've said too much, but I, I thank you, Lord. I thank you uh, for the majesty of your calling, for making these earthen vessels, bearers of the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name.